Welcome back to Dev Dive episode 29. I'm your host, Nighthawk. Today, we're jumping into the world of game dev with my guest, Jared Sarden, a front-end developer for the Cryptic Studios. Thanks for coming on the show, Jared. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, funny story about how we got in contact with Jared for the show. Um, I put out a Reddit post about a week or two ago, sort of extolling the virtues of my show. I'm like, hey, I thought this was really cool. We had a bunch of people on the show. Um, this might be useful for people in the world of game dev or people trying to get into game dev. And uh, it got some pretty popular attention on the front page of Reddit. So um, one of the top comments was like, hey, I really uh, dig this, but almost all of your game dev guests are from Riot Games. Um, can you get anyone else on? I'm like, well, right now it's kind of hard to get people on the show if I don't know who they are. Um, but if you know anyone who wants to come on, please let me know. And we actually had a ton of people reach out and, and offer to be on the show. And Jared was one of them. So thank you so much for reaching out. Um, yeah, I think I was actually one of the the quote unquote trolls. These are all Riot developers. <laughs> where where's the rest of them? Um, where's I think the that real was game devs? <laughs> where where are the other ones? Yeah, yeah. So very excited to have a talk with you today about everything. So I think one of the first things to talk about is your first role, your your current role at Cryptic, and then we'll go into more depth on that later. Um, so tell us about what a front end developer actually does and like what sort of impact it's having on somebody playing the game, somebody like me. So I, I just started at cryptic a couple months back, actually late summer last year and somewhere in the midst of whatever 2020 was. Uh, and the, the front end team that I'm on is a handful of us and in, in normal applications in web, whatnot, the front end team is usually the, the, the crew that puts the buttons and text and information on screen. The, the, the guy that you point the finger at, because they're usually the ones that leave the bugs first. Um, <laughs> in, in games, it's a little different because there's so much that builds into a game. Uh, Front-end teams in games tend to be uh, the UI engineers. So when you click a button or when you see your health or when you're fighting a mob and you see like the little explosion of damage pop off and then you see like the, the gold like critical hit, uh, those are some of the things that like a front-end engineer or a UI guy like myself would do. Uh, UI person, I should say. Uh, but it's, it's really just kind of the, how do we make the, the visuals of the game show the data? How do we manage your inventory? How do we uh, give you messages? Uh, so I, I touch all of those aspects um, that aren't specifically gameplay. Definitely. And I think in very, very basic terms, you're the person who takes the numbers and puts them into pretty pictures for people to actually understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I'm the guy who puts the, the outlines on your numbers so you can read them on screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so switching topics to get a little bit more background on you, you mentioned in our precinct that you're actually a dungeon master for a D&D show on Twitch. Uh, what's that like? Yeah, so uh, for those of you watching on Twitch, you'll see behind me that there's some stuff hung up on my wall. Um, yeah, that's that's... The backgrounds for my D and D show, it's it's actually a pretty cool experience. Uh, we I've been playing D and D for five plus years, off and on, and then uh, sporadically in the last twenty. Uh, so in the last twenty, I'd play uh, a game here or there, but in the last five years, I've been playing a, a time or two a month. Um, that kind of opened up some possibilities that, as a software developer, you don't always get. Um, 
I'm a super creative software developer, so I love the the world of possibilities and telling stories, and D&D is a, a place to do that. So we're like, why why not just put together a show if we get two people that watch? Whatever, we can stream our campaigns, we can go back and look at them. Uh, I'm also a data collector, so, you know, I've got all of my episodes, except for, like, the second episode that had a really funny Twitch glitch and we lost <laughs> the VOD. Uh, so I've got all that. That It's, it's really cool because... Um, when they're when you're in the world of so many bits and pieces that are moving in like a D&D game or in software being able to look back and go oh yeah that really did happen all those hundreds of hours ago is just a really cool experience to storytelling yeah i definitely value that a lot um one of the main benefits of of doing a show like this is being able to go back um two or three years whenever we first started doing this and looking back and saying like oh wow this we made this much growth since then because in your brain, your brain plays tricks on you, and it, and it doesn't really allow you to see that growth if you're just thinking back. You'll think back and you'll be like, oh, I was exactly the same way back then. But having hard evidence, going back and saying like, oh, we made a big difference between then and now, it, it feels very good. Um, yeah, having hard evidence of storytelling, having hard evidence of just even, you know, the tech guy, which was myself, not being able to set up the microphone in the right direction <laughs> in episode three or whatever it was. <laughs> Uh, so other than other than being able to look back and see the past differences, what is like what are the main differences between DMing a private group of friends and DMing on a show like this? Yeah, so I think one of the things here is uh, this is live on Twitch right now, and you get to read some comments and interact with those. Um, and you don't tend to get that while you're playing D and D just at a table. Mm-hmm. So sometimes chat, while they're only twenty or forty seconds behind, throws something in that catches my players. Uh, all the players are able to read comments and respond to them. So we, we try and incorporate some of uh, our fans. And we, we have a few regulars that come back time and time again. So they make little guest appearances as NPCs or various other things that, you know, become a broader joke than four of us sitting at a table. So not only do you get, like, the interaction there, but you get things like uh, being able to share those moments more broadly in a tweet or in a, a group on discord and it's it kind of opens up the the world uh whereas sitting at a table in standard D with your friends closed in a, a room um that world only lives there mm-hmm. whereas um when people are watching they can make fan art or side stories or say oh what about uh and so the world opens up possibilities to hundreds of people versus five yeah, definitely. That's awesome. I love the the idea of bringing in user interaction into a game like D&D and just having some sort of ability for people who aren't maybe directly involved in the campaign to have some sort of impact on it. That that makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we have uh some tipping tiers that at a certain level of tipping, um NPCs just show up in in the game. So, I have a friend or foe tier that will show like, you know, a dragon could just drop in and scorch the party as they're having breakfast. Or uh, a friend could show up for the rest of the episode. So it's it's fun because then the people watching feel like they can influence it in some way. I have a friend uh, group who is super interested in the D&D show Critical Role. Do they do anything like that? Or are they more of a self-contained apparatus? Critical Role uh, took a interesting spin. I think early on they attempted to engage with uh, chat but it gets tough. They have, mm-hmm. I think, six to eight players at a time, which is a huge group for D&D. 
So Matt Mercer is a brilliant dude, great with his voices and great with story, but to manage six to eight people plus chat plus whatever it may be, even with someone strategically picking out a comment or two, yeah, it's just so much going on in, in your head. Um, but I think they, they operate a bit more closed and then um, chat goes wild with their moderators and they're able to have discussion with people who aren't directly influencing the game. Yeah. So for anyone interested in your show, uh, where would they find that yeah. and what time do you uh, play? Yeah, we play twice a month, uh, usually the first and third Saturdays, um, sometimes when there's a fifth Saturday of the month, which is this month. Uh, mm-hmm. We play at 4 p.m. Pacific on Twitch, um, Here Be Dragons D&D. Um, HereBeDragonsDnd.com has all of our links. We also pop into podcast format. Uh, Anchor FM is a wonderful tool that lets us get on all of the platforms, and we're like, why not? Uh, so you can catch us there if you don't uh, see us live. Um, I know we have people all across the globe that tune in. So if it's 2 a.m. when we start, go to bed. Catch us later. <laughs> Anchor FM is a godsend for somebody trying to host a podcast. I didn't, uh, when I first was looking and in doing into research into doing a show like this, um, there was like three sites that I saw and one of them was paid. And I was like, okay, I'm making negative money on this already. I really don't want to put more negative money into it. Um, and the other two were kind of crappy and I was doing some more research and I found anchor FM and I'm like, this is too good to be true. This is literally the easiest thing ever. You just upload the show. It goes out automatically to every site. You're done. That's it. There's a little bit of setup, but other than that, it's just magical. You don't have to deal with the metadata and the tagging and the image uploads every spot you go. Yeah. The RSS feeds. Oh man. Uh, that's just a little side. I love anchor FM. I'm glad you mentioned them. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't think they, I know that they do, um, that weird advertisement stuff. I haven't messed around with that much yet, but anchor FM, if you're out there, uh, we'd love to have you as a a sponsor on the show. (laughs) Um, I have nothing but great things to say about you. So moving on to some other topics about you, um, I saw, I thought this was really funny when I asked you for background talking points on, on yourself. You mentioned that you were a, a regional champion for a Counter-Strike League. Um, and I don't know how long, how long ago was that? I prefer not to answer that question. <laughs> uh, no, it was um, early 2000s. So back when Cal and CPL were the big ones, and then MLG came onto the, the scene, back before any of these other uh, like major events that you see, uh, now every esport has or every game has their own esport league. Um it was a it was a league I think for Halo, Counter Strike, and I want to say something like NBA, one of the NBA games of that time. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it was early thousands. It was a handful of us that went to uh high school together. We were competing in Halo tournaments for fun, um uh, playing CS uh one point six for fun. Um and it was it was quite a a fantastical experience to be playing these games competitively instead of just like i'm gonna Mm -hmm. hop into a pickup server it was more of a i'm gonna hop in really enjoy and see how i can uh kind of make my way in this uh one of the the fun experiences i had around that time was we had entered into a competition locally and we tried figuring out where it was it was in the basement in like a back corner of this car show one of the booths was like we're going to put together a few of the local teams and have them compete it's like 
what are we doing here? And like the grand prize for that was a $50 Burger King uh, gift card. Hell so, yeah. you know, back in, back in the heyday of uh, esports. So for people who were inside the, the CSGO scene, or sorry, not CSGO, back then it would be just Counter-Strike. Um, 1.6. 1.6. <laughs> oh, um, no, 1.5 then. <laughs> how big a deal was Cal? Was Cal like the, the, the bee's knees for the competitive scene? Yeah, Cal and CPL were, I think, if you look at it like in a sports setup, it would be like the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then MLG was like the big leagues. Um, Cal was the cyber amateur league or cyber athlete amateur league. And then CPL was like the the step up, which was the cyber professional or cyber athlete professional league. Uh, so we were only in Cal. We weren't in like CPL where it was the big boys playing. Um, but it was still kind of a fun thing because it was it was still you're one of the better teams in the game. Definitely. So yeah. did that riding the high of, of being the regional champion for Counter-Strike, did you ever consider like going pro professional, going competitive for a living? Uh, at that time, it was, it was not something as easily attainable. Um, mm. You had to have sponsorship. You had to have an in and it was, a lot smaller pool of teams. Um, so to go pro, you had to have been noticed and picked up. And usually that's what like Cal and CPL were set up for is getting noticed, getting those sponsors, uh, getting pulled up into the, the bigger leagues, getting transitioned over to MLG. Uh, today it's a lot easier because you can just stream it. And someone goes, wow, you're good. I want you on my team. So I, I mean, I probably briefly considered it and then went, nah, <laughs> Do you still play Counter-Strike at all? Uh, once in a while, I'll, I'll pop into 1.6 or CSGO. Uh, I moved on to Overwatch for a handful of years, and some StarCraft and StarCraft 2 were in the mix, so kind of all over the board for uh, this kind of thing. Yeah. StarCraft is a good game. We've talked about StarCraft more yeah. than probably is representative of people who still play StarCraft. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's got a nice place in most game developer and uh game people's hearts because it's something that kind of changed the genre and like stuck it was a center point for a handful of years yeah i definitely enjoy playing it even though i wasn't one of the people who got into it like at a young age i came into it probably 2009 right before uh starcraft 2 launched so i rode the second wave Um, hey that was a good wave to ride yeah I, i grew up with with red alert and age of empires those were my rts's growing up um I think that's slightly after the the original Starcraft boom. Yeah, just a a little bit. <laughs> so outside of gaming and outside of D and D, do you have any other interests and hobbies that you want to talk about? I'm just a boring person. <laughs> no, uh, being being a developer, I think uh, I've always had little side projects. I've always been in game jams, uh, trying new tools, new languages, uh, various other things out. Uh, that's kind of been like one of my go-tos. Um, for a while, I, I was bicycling wherever I could throughout LA uh, mm-hmm. because in LA traffic is terrible. So you can walk, drive, or bike to the same place in about the same time, regardless if it's a mile or three miles away. Uh, so I, I got into cycling for a bit. Um, we have a couple dogs, so uh, two miniature dachshunds. Hopefully, they're going to stay quiet during this because. <laughs> They're they're little noisemakers, so just all around trying getting away from screens is a big thing. Yeah. Uh, being a software developer and a gamer, I'm staring at these pixels more often than not. So uh, 
being outside when it's not cold and rainy is uh, a huge fun time for me. Yeah. Last year, um, before things shut down, uh, I lived in LA and out of, um, shoot, how do I already forget this? Hermosa beach or sorry. Oh, the, yeah. Um, uh, the one right next to Hermosa beach on the right, uh, Redondo beach. I should know. Redondo. This, yeah. I lived there. <laughs> and I worked in El Segundo and, um, nice. I didn't have a car. So I was like, how am I going to get to El Segundo? Uh, so the, the, prevailing strategy ended up being bicycling so i biked about nine to ten miles a day to get to the office and it wasn't too bad um everyone was sort of giving me all these scare tactics that like biking in la was going to be a life-threatening thing every time but i think i avoided some of the the worse areas in terms of traffic um luckily but it was fun i, I, I was only it. i was only hit twice so you know <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was actually in Marina del Rey and biked to the other side of Culver City, so it was six, seven miles one way, which was fun. Uh, when we get into past rolls, uh, it was at a game company, so a 3 a.m. bike home was <laughs> definitely exhausting. That's what My, my role uh, had me getting off at around 12 o'clock at night, and biking home at, on Aviation Boulevard, which is one of the bigger uh, roads in, in El Segundo, it was awesome because there's nobody there. You get like one car and it's 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 sort of uh surreal because biking there, it's the height of rush hour. It's literally bumper to bumper traffic the whole way. Um so it was really odd coming back and being like completely deserted. It's just a different city at night. Um, yeah. But Marina Delay is beautiful. I biked up there a couple times. It's just an absolutely gorgeous place to bike around. Yeah, I mean it's it's great for walking and biking, and that's why we lived there for a while because who needed a car in LA if it was just going to stay parked most of the time? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And then you're going to get sweet street sweeper tickets and everything. Man, I only lived there for like 10 months and I'm already bitter about it. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about uh, a bit about your degree in game development because um, the primary purpose of the show is to sort of give people a window into game dev and how to get into game dev. So the yeah. place that most people start is uh, college. So let's talk about... Uh, both your degrees because you have two and why you decided to get them yeah surprise i don't have a degree in game development um back when i was in school it was actually mildly rare to have that option at most colleges and universities i think when i was looking to go to school i was looking at either i think phoenix university or digipen um two schools that really only had some of the the higher caliber game development uh, I settled on not going to either because they were expensive and hard to get into. And so I, I decided I would take up uh, network engineering and uh, security, which after the first semester, I said, no, not for me. Uh, and then I ended up pursuing uh, a dual degree or a dual major in uh, web design and web development because that's where I was at. I was building web pages. I was on the side um, helping out mom and pop shops get online. Uh, you know, building people, their Zanga and MySpace layouts, um, all the, the fun stuff of that era. And so I decided to kind of pursue it professionally, uh, which is great because the school I went to is actually a, a more business and technology focused. So it was like business first, technology second. And I'm super thankful on that because as a technologist, I am innately learning and growing and building myself up anyways. And I don't think about the 
business side of it so yeah. much. But when you're forced to go through all the business courses and uh, project planning and Gantt charting and all of that mess, you go, oh, yeah, there's a lot more to writing software, or building a game than just hammering hands on keyboard and clicking away on, on pixels. Uh, so I decided to pursue the the dual major because I figured if I'm not going to get into games right away, I'll at least get into something that I'm able to do. Uh, that put me into like tracks of learning JavaScript and HTML and CSS, like the, the core tenets of what makes a web page. Um, and then learning some of the backend technologies, which would be like C sharp, C plus plus, PHP, all the other uh, single and triple letter uh, programming languages that are kind of driving the internet these days. Um, so I, I got through that uh, degree, and once I once I got through school, I realized and looked back actually just recently uh, when I was able to choose any of the type of project when it was like, hey, it's an open ended assignment, make a final project in what you learned. I was always building games like really messing with the tech that I had learned and said, let's build a game out of this. It shouldn't work, but let's do it anyways. Um, and that's that's kind of what pushed me at that point to say, well, eventually I'll, I'll get into games more permanently. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that you mentioned the networking class because I, I took a couple networking classes myself. And I remember one of the assignments was to manually submit out a bunch of IPs. Um, and I just... That was the moment where I'm like, okay, this isn't for me. I don't want to be calculating which are the ideal APs for IPv4 and IPv6, and uh, it was just a mess. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the pivotal point for me was in my intro to network security. Uh, we were learning all of like the cheap ways to hack a system and then how to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And I ended up halfway through the semester going in and capturing like the login for the Blackboard, the the software running the class, mm -hmm. um, logging in and changing my grade to 120% and then telling the professor that, uh, I did that. And I was like, I don't really want to do this. If I'm, if I'm breaking into the software that should be secure running this course, and then I don't want to deal with other like brats like myself doing that. So this isn't the role for me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's a nuclear arms race of just like people getting ridiculously advanced at this sort of thing. And I was, fully aware that my drive and, and knowledge was not going to be up to the snuff of some of these other people who were just really, really smart and really, really good at what they do. <laughs> so yeah, that, uh, that cemented my career path outside of that. Um, <laughs> so actually this is interesting because like we said earlier, we do have a lot of people on the show from Riot and I think they have a bit of a different philosophy than maybe other game developers. So I wanted to ask you this. Um, a lot of the people I talk to don't actually put a lot of weight into their college degrees. They went to college for something completely unrelated or they didn't really learn anything or they didn't really enjoy it. Um, but you actually seem like you uh, enjoyed and were thankful for your time at college. So how do you think that your education prepared you for your professional life? Yeah, so kind of like what I said before, I don't think my degree was the thing I enjoyed and was excited about, but the secondary and tertiary courses that were alongside of that, um, I was ready to just hop into a, a job right out of high school and do like website design and development for, um, like I said, mom and pop shops. That's what I was doing on the side. But I think going through school, it did a few things. One, it kind of matured me, stuck me in a spot for a little bit where I, I had space to experiment. I also had safety net kind of to experiment because 
while yes, you don't make a lot of money in college, you're also at that age and that point where you could have a side job such as waiting tables, which is what I did, um, that pays for your books, pays for uh, your your housing and whatnot. But then you, somehow you still end up having 20 hours a week to sink into a game like World of Warcraft if you just <laughs> harness that a little bit and uh, put that to other studies. That's that's awesome. But like I like I was saying is um, it wasn't the courses for my major that were the best. It was the courses that weren't. So business and law and project planning and various other things where it was like it gets my toes in the water for other parts of being a competent business person uh, really pushed me along because then when I get into situations where uh, an incredibly bright developer uh, might stumble because they just don't know standard practice in business or project planning or various other things right out of school, uh, I was able to have that like foot ahead where it's like, yeah, sure, I might not be able to answer all the programming uh, questions to the CS 101 uh, setup, but I can keep my project on task and know how to handle when it goes off tack. Um, I I also love saying this too. I worked with a, a guy in software development who studied to be a librarian and decided the instant he graduated, that wasn't for him. And he was one of the brightest software developers in the company I was with at the time. It doesn't really matter per se uh, about the degree in software or game development, as long as you've kind of furthered yourself and got your mind into like a, a growth pattern. So if you were to start over today and you're going back to college or you're going to college yeah. for the first time, what what would you do in order to get into a role like you are right now? I think one of the things that I would do is since I was in a web-focused uh, career path for school, uh, that put me into an interesting spot. I didn't get the CS, the computer science side of it, um, meaning I didn't get all of the the crappy little uh, bits of information that everyone asks on the interviews, like, can you write me a, a sort algorithm and can you do it backwards? And it's like, well, yes, but it won't be as efficient as someone who had the book hammered into them. So I'd make sure that's on my, my repertoire coming out of school. Um, while I've taught myself most of that, I think it's a, a core competency because while you might go, oh yeah, I learned it in CS 101, I'm never going to use it again. Well, when you're sorting through data at a high rate of speed, uh, to get your game running faster, it does help. Uh, so that's one thing. Make sure you get your CS major uh, in place. So this is from a developer's standpoint. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you've had a, a few other people of different uh, calibers and backgrounds, uh, but for a developer, I'd say get CS. Computer science is like your foundation. Um, take business courses, take project planning courses, take law, take whatever you can that would help you in business because even if you're the, the smartest developer on the team, when it comes down to the extracurriculars and the other things that happen, um, when the project goes uh, off the rails a little bit, and especially in game teams when things get really hectic and busy and maybe your producer just can't keep it all together, that's where you can step in and own bits and pieces of the project. Uh, that's where you can actually push yourself forward in the company, in the project, own something in a game that you might not have been able to before um, just by having outside knowledge other than this is what I do and this is how I do it and this is what I do well. Know some other stuff. Um, Jack of all trades is great, but be careful not to spread yourself too thin and be like, I can do audio design and 3D and CAD and levels design and systems design, but I can't do any of it well. Um, 
So focus on like the, the core direction that you want to go. So for me, it'd be, again, it'd be programming. Um, I might throw in some like graphics systems where you do the fun 3D math, fun in air quotes, I should say, because uh, <laughs> 3D math is something that uh, I once in a while wake up to uh, in the middle of the night having nightmares of not being able to figure out what the quaternion is for a certain rotation. And that's, that's just the, the mental hell some of us developers live in. <laughs> So, so on the less technical side of thing for college, mm-hmm. uh, do you have any recommendations or, or ideas for people to stay, like you said, stay sane in college and, and make it the best experience for them? Maybe not in terms of classes, but hobbies and, and yeah. what to do outside of that. Yeah, I think one of the big things is keeping your mind engaged, but not overwhelming it. Uh, I think in school, there's a lot of overwhelming because you just get so much information thrown at you all the time. Uh, not letting your mind shut off. I think in my first semester or two, I, I sunk so much time into World of Warcraft, so I just kind of, like, click that off. And so it was, it was these hard starts and stops that I was having with, like, the mental uh, focus, uh, which made it challenging in some of the courses. So don't, don't turn off, per se. Uh, one thing I found here, and they're always sitting off to the side, is I've got a handful of Rubik's Cubes here. And I'm not a great Rubik's Cuber, but it's something where it's like it engages your mind, uh, but not to an extent that you're sitting there trying to solve uh, some rocket science program. But instead, maybe you can get a little further this time. Um, and it's very methodical, so it does keep your mind engaged. So find something that's like um, engaging but not overwhelming as like a little hobby or a project something you can sit down to for five or 10 minutes uh, that just kind of keeps the, the juices flowing. I think also surround yourself with others that maybe aren't in your level or even in your degree, because you'll learn stuff. You'll learn things from other majors. You'll learn things uh, from people who are ahead or even behind you in school. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people forget is they surround themselves with the, the group partners and the project partners, but they don't go talk to the business person or to the, the nursing students down the hall. Uh, who knows? You might get onto a game later that is like a surgeon simulator and you need to know the difference between a spleen and a kidney. So you, you might find that out. <laughs> I like that. Um, and I like the point that you made about not letting your brain shut down. Cause I think that, I definitely fell into that trap when I was in college. Um, I fell into the just all-encompassing. It wasn't wild for me. It was probably League of Legends, honestly. But um, just letting yourself get trapped in that in that thing and letting it become the most important thing in your life, um, even though it shouldn't be and it shouldn't even be in the top three, um, because it's dangerous. It's so easy. It's an. I don't even want to say it's escapism, because it it, it is sort of filtering your your brain into like something that is important to you but it's definitely not the most constructive thing you could be doing with your time especially in college yeah i mean it is a drug in in terms that uh the chemicals your brain produces it's addicting um and i'm sure we all fall into it but i think the big thing too is while that's addicting and that's something that like you keep your hand-eye coordination up. It's it's great for that. It's great to get a little bit of that in. Um, it's also great to go for a run or pick up some weights once in a while. Uh, that's that's another thing too is keeping the blood flowing um, because the the more that you keep like your body in motion, the easier it is for your brain to get rid of the distractions. And usually, for most people, the easier it is to focus, to sleep, to 
um, continue to metabolize, which is all great for learning. Um, and a lot of times you're just like, nah, I'm done with school. I'm just going to go sit in front of Netflix for six hours and check out, which doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Never underestimate the power of lifting, just lifting for five minutes or doing some push-ups, or jumping jacks or running down the road or just get some physical exercise in. I know it's like the oldest trope in the book and it's everybody gives this advice, but it, it you never understand how important it is until you're actually going out and doing it. And you're just like, it just refreshes your brain for a second. You're like, okay, this isn't the worst time in my life. I'm not having the worst day ever. I'm able to focus and work on this project before it's due the night before <laughs> because I procrastinated too much. The life um, of any college student, right? <laughs> It's it's easy to become trapped in your room, your dorm, your apartment, wherever you are, and sort of just become disconnected from everything. So if you can go outside and walk down the road and see some nature, it helps a lot. But um, yeah, yeah, just don't I mean, don't check out. <laughs> don't check out. I mean, the the thing there too is like staying refreshed keeps you from getting those those feelings of oh man i won't be able to get into this career or i won't be able to finish my degree uh which i think is a big thing when it comes to game development because it is mildly challenging to break in game development as a whole uh we're not a huge group of people i'm sure i'm gonna cross paths with six of the guys that i worked with in the last 10 years in the next five or six like i will see the same people again and again um and so getting into it is a challenge and i'm not saying you can't but i'm just saying like it it sucks when you're sitting there all alone and checked out going i won't be able to you can you just need yeah. to get yourself over that hump yeah understand the path that you need to take to get into it because it might not be as direct as you think it is which is an excellent segue into the next <laughs> part of this conversation um let's talk about your roles before you joined cryptarch so yeah. um there was a lot of them when i when i looked up your linkedin i'm like oh man this guy's done a lot of different stuff so Let's talk briefly about everything from college to cryptic. I think I called it yeah, cryptic so, earlier. <laughs> cryptic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All good. Uh, yeah, so cryptic studios is where I'm at. But uh, as you said, the the pathway there is a long and interesting one. Um, I'm gonna try and go from memory. Uh, and forgive me if I miss. I'll, I'll backtrack. I'll, I'll get to it. But uh, right out of school, um, I had gone to work at a company called Armstrong International, uh, steam, air, and hot water processing facility. Like they, they created the little pieces that go into big processing plants. So uh, the can of soda that you might be drinking now or will drink later goes through a lot of uh, processes such as spraying down the, the metal as it comes in in a sheet, getting it to the right temperature, spraying it down as they fill it so it doesn't explode all over. Um, that company made like all the little bits and pieces that go into making sure that temperature or that spray or that flow is, is great. Now, the reason I expounded on that is because I ended up uh, rebuilding their entire product catalog website, which was a very fun experience in PHP. I don't want to get into any depth of that, but it was, it was essentially moving from one system to a newer version of that system that didn't match. Um, so it was, it was a great learning experience there. Uh, it was one where I got to deal with a lot of data. Uh, I got hired in on the marketing team as the developer, which later I found out was because the marketing team wasn't getting the development team support, but they had budget for another person. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was kind of fun because that, that let me hit points where, not to throw the company under the bus at all, uh, but that, that let me hit points where I was able to bridge 
a team that knew nothing about development with a team who knew a lot about development. And that's where I was able to Im immediately start applying my, my degree um, in terms of not the degree, but the other courses. So knowing what the business goals were and knowing what uh, the outcomes were, I was able to talk between the teams and get things aligned and kind of liaise, um, which is incredible and scary all at the same time as like a 21 year old trying to rebuild millions of nodes of data and making sure they're correct when we build a new website, because, you know, there's people all over the globe needing their readmes for these things. Um, so, so that was, that was fairly interesting. How, I'll, I'll how large was Hearthstone? Do you know? Um, so I was in a little town called three rivers. Uh, I think the town was about a half block long. Um, so the, the building itself, there were a handful of people on like sales and marketing, probably about 10 or 12 of us on that floor. Um, we had a whole machine shop and CAD agency and design. We had a network of, um, sales reps and people across, uh, the U S. So I think in building, we only had about a hundred to 200 people. And that was including the majority of the staff being on like the design and machinery floor. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we probably had about 50 or 100 throughout uh, the U.S. and the rest of the world who helped sell and market the product. So coming in, would you say that you were like one of the only people who really knew what they were doing in terms of like computer design and, and website design? Nope. Uh, we, we actually had a development team that uh, was building some of the applications for like the embedded uh, firmware for these boxes. So uh, you can't just sell a nozzle and say it'll work in any system. You write code around how that nozzle opens and closes. Uh, so there's a team that was building some of that. They also built uh, some of the infrastructure around like the learning platform for our representatives to share information about the thousands of products that we had. Um, I just happened to be the most knowledgeable on my team. Um, and then I was able to bridge the two teams that kind of needed to work hand in hand instead of throw stuff over the wall. Um, a lot of times in companies, in many, many, many companies, there's a lot of this throw over the wall experience. The developers can do it. So let's hand it to them and hope they can. Um, but it's never a let's work together and figure out what you need and what I can do. Um, because a lot of a lot of people don't speak the same language in terms of development. Like I can speak super technical, probably have people have glazed over as they've listened. Um, but being able to break that down into something where it's like, Oh, you want a button that does X, Y, or Z. Um, that was kind of my role there is trying to really understand business goals and interpret them into either my work or the, the dev team's work. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Because um, yeah. when I, the, when you were describing it, I imagined you coming into this, like not very small, but like this small company with a, widespread thing and everyone's sort of just not really knowing and they're like hey this guy knows computers we're gonna do him we're gonna make him do all this stuff because i've had that experience yeah. before i mean it was it was definitely the computer guy needed on the non-technical team that needed the technical support um but i i was by no means the smartest person in the room at any point so mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's let's move on to number two or whatever. Yeah, I, I think I interrupted you. I'm sorry if I did, but yeah, no, no, um, that's fine. Uh, feel free to interrupt at any point. I probably have a lot of answers to things. Uh, so I was at Armstrong, and I had started an official company at that point uh, called Level Two Studios, which kind of brought the the guys I played video games with together. We were already doing software development for um, small things, and we actually ended up doing a bit more. We did some software 
some website presence, some print. Uh, we built an application that I think 20 or 30 uh, college campuses used for um, displaying digitally some of their, their signage. So in a lot of college campuses, uh, where you go to get your information is actually in or around like the, the food halls. Uh, there's there's post boards or various other things that get put up, uh, posters that get created with events for the month. Uh, we built a digital version of that that a few schools were able to kind of share and use. So the students, all they had to do is scan uh, a code and they'd have the app. It would get notifications to say, hey, guess what? Tater tots are on sale because we made way too many of them this morning. Come get them now. Something that you wouldn't be able to do normally um, all the way up through like just a reminder, we have this event happening tomorrow, so make sure to park on this side of the lot. Like, various things like that. It was, it was kind of cool. Uh, it, it grew a lot faster than we were expecting it to. Um, but that was a, a really cool moment where I was able to own a product fully. Uh, a lot of times you don't get that in even medium to small companies. Like, there's a lot of people that have their hands in a project. Uh, but it was me and a couple other guys that uh, really rocked it out for that uh so that was level two studios which um was more or less a side gig for a while it was kind of part-time um i transitioned into a company called uh, atomic object which another michigan company amazing company this is where i think i grew the most uh this is where i started understanding all of the the bits and pieces that i didn't know i didn't know um and that's one of the things coming out of college, you're like, okay, I'm a hotshot. I'm ready. I passed all my courses. I aced all my tests. And then the real world hits you and it's just like, oh, there's a lot more out there. And this is kind of where it hit. So about a year later, um, at Atomic Object, it was a, a full stack shop. So I was able to write some server software, some front end software, iOS, Android, web, uh, like touch everything. Uh, Again, another thing you don't get in school, a lot of times in school, you get put into either a front-end or back-end category. You get to do server work, or you get to do the fancy button-click work, but you don't do it all. Um, I mean, it's probably changed since everything is now written in JavaScript with Node and JavaScript as a whole, but uh, at Atomic Object, it was pretty cool because that's where I got a handful of mentors that kind of lifted me out of, hey, this is as far as I can go right now because I'm only 23. Um, I'm not going to be able to get anywhere. Uh, and instead it was, hey, here's here's some books to read. Here's a way to grow yourself that's not just like come to work, hammer out some keys, hope you learn something. Um, and that kind of solidified my my drive to, you know, you learn a little bit on the job, but you learn a lot more outside of it. So keeping on top of your tech or keeping on top of your uh, area of expertise is something that we all should be doing because your job's not going to just teach you. Uh, in reality, it's more like they expect you to know. Um, so that's, that's a, that was a great experience. And that's actually where I started pushing more into game dev. Uh, a bunch of the guys there were writing their own game systems. Uh, so one guy was writing a, a Ruby game engine because we're a Ruby shop. Um, and it was kind of fun because he's like, yeah, you shouldn't really write a game in Ruby, but I'm going to. Uh, and then a, a few of us, we built some uh, networked web games for a few game jams. And that's where I was kind of getting the spark of, well, I got to move my career into games. Yeah. That's where, that's where you decided this is where I'm going to make this transition out of development in, in sort of this, uh, all these other industries into games uh, specifically. Uh, just for those who aren't like super familiar with 
development and stuff like that. What's the difference between a full stack engineer and like a back end and a front end? Full stack is yeah. all encompassing. Yeah. So a full stack is someone who, if you put them in a room, could essentially write everything from the server to the front end. They could write the server that manages your passwords, your data, write it securely, write it quickly, uh, and then write the the stuff that we interact with, which is the front end, the thing you see in your browser or the thing that pops up on your on your app on your phone. Um, so they're they're able to comprehend and understand the languages that go into all of that, um, the the data transfer that makes up those systems. Um, whereas like a back end is just the person who tends to work on the servers, doesn't tend to like uh, or doesn't have like the expertise. They might like it, but they don't have generally have the expertise around design. So the front ender is the the person who generally translates the business goals into clickable and touchable things, but through the lens of their designer. So being able to understand design and apply that is a, a huge uh, difference with like a front end or a full stack person. And as projects get larger and as, as the scope of things get bigger, do you see full stacks sort of getting zoned out and more people like focusing in on specific things? Yeah, uh, we'll we'll jump forward briefly. Uh, at Cryptic and other game studios, you tend to see it split up drastically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll see people who are working on front-end UI, like myself. So I, I work on just the UI on the front-end. I don't write any of like the server code or client code. Then you'll have the client guys who work on maybe Windows or the consoles or various other things, and they work at potentially the layer of um, or a couple different layers. One might be audio, one might be 3D and graphics. Another might be just um, taking all of like the, the game understanding of how you interact, so the game systems, the game data, and applying that into how the world or worlds or levels play out. Um, so there's, there's four or five right there on just like the quote-unquote front end. Um, then you have the back end, which could be split into a bunch of different things because you have different stores and different uh, currencies and different account needs. Uh, you have different server types, like speaking of WoW or League of Legends, you have something that stands alone, which is called like your login server. Mm-hmm. And there's people who just maintain your accounts. They don't maintain anything that goes into the games. They don't maintain anything that goes into the rest of your experience but just your data and how that gets passed between all the systems. So full stack really doesn't exist. Uh, you might you might be kind of cross stack at one end or the other. So you might be a client full stack. So you could do some audio, you could do some 3D, you could do some UI. Um, smaller studios, you might get the chance to do the non-client work, but uh, it really starts breaking apart the larger the project and the larger the teams. Um, so that's where, going back to the schooling part, being a jack of all trades doesn't really help because if you have that aha moment, you go, oh, my client's not behaving because I'm getting this wrong thing from the back end. When in reality, it's maybe one of the back end pieces that gets filtered through three different uh, like front end layers. Yeah, we can go on to fun stories of chasing bugs later. Speaking, speaking off the cuff just a bit. Do you think games and projects lose a tiny bit of like that magic when you sort of segment them out so much? Or do you think? they actually get better when you have, I mean, of course they get better because there's more people working on them, but if you had the perfect project, would you want to work on it with only like people who focus on everything or would you want everybody specialized? 
think specialization comes in very, very nicely um, with the the roaming uh, know-it-alls, I guess. Not in a bad way, know-it-all, but like the person who can jump in anywhere. They're they're great at development. They're great at bug fixing. They can hop into the front end, the back end, the client code, the server code, um, because those are the people that kind of drive. If you were to think of it like take a ball of yarn and you set it in one person's hand and you say you need to get it to someone else, you got to have that person who can really speak the language all the way up the line because, you know, you can't all speak the language. And as I said earlier, if you have too many um, non-specialized people in the room, you don't all know things to the depth that you might need. So Mm -hmm. looking at something like um, a shooter, those servers run quickly uh, for a while there. It, they would run at like 12 or 20 or maybe if you're lucky, 30 frames per second on the server. Even if your machine's running at 144 frames, the server's only calculating so many uh, frames. So there's a lot of magic to make the, like the smoothness. Now, you need someone super, super specialized to really hone that down and say, I can get the server to run 60 frames a second, maybe 120 frames per second. And then shots land and they feel good um you get that like final click and you beat somebody by like a very small fraction of a second to that like that win condition when before maybe the the slower tick servers wouldn't allow it Mm -hmm. you feel that that expertise of the person who's able to hone in on that craft same with the ui same with any other like part of a project uh, you have to have some really, really deep divers to really drive uh, excellence in things. So if I'm calculating, or if, not, if I'm remembering correctly, we started with Armstrong, we transitioned yep. into level two as sort of a side gig, and then we yep. are at Atomic. Is yep. there anything between Atomic and Cryptic? Yeah, a handful of things. Okay, uh, I I get into my game career, kind of. Oh. Uh, so I, I'd moved from Atomic out to Sony in LA. Uh, I was working with a smaller studio called Loot Interactive. Uh, They had a few games of them, their own, and then they were doing a lot of game porting. So bringing um, indie games to the the Sony line, Um, being able to play those indie games on a Sony platform where an indie developer might only have a couple people and they don't really have the hardware or the know-how to make their iOS game perform well. Uh, So I I was with that company. Uh, it was a contract to hire, and then the big Sony hack hit before I got my conversion. Uh, so I didn't stay there super long, but in my like five months there, uh, I actually helped build a, a platform for um, iterating on video services on the Sony line of the Vita, PlayStation 3, and 4. Uh, so I worked on things like Crackle and MLB and uh, built out the entirety of the first version of Red Bull TV. Um, so while it wasn't explicitly gaming, I got to deal with all the fun joys of console certification and building on a dev kit and understanding that it's not just my computer that runs the game at points. I'm sending it across the server to something else and it just dies because, well, it doesn't like the way I've written my code. Whereas the server emulator, yeah, that's fine. It's easy. Um, so that was a, a a fun misstep, I would say. Uh, it got me out to L.A. where I was a lot closer to games. Previously, <laughs> I was in Michigan, so there was like two studios, and they were either full up or just uh, didn't want to hire me because I had no game experience, which it's hard to get game experience in a place that has no games. Um, <laughs> the thriving game hub of Michigan. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, there was S2 Studios there, which did, like, uh, Heroes of New Earth and Strife and a few others, which, great games. Um, I think that was about it. There was <laughs> something in Detroit. <laughs> Uh, so the thriving metropolis of all of those game studios, uh, but in LA there, there was a lot more. Um, so I, I bailed, uh, before I was given the official boot because they were getting rid of all the contracts Mm -hmm. and it was a, it was an interesting time. Um, especially the day that all of our computers had that skull face on the screen. So much fun. Um, and I had been pursuing riot actually, let's see, since the start of when I was at atomic object. Um, so I'd pursued Riot for a couple of years. I had a few interviews, just kind of missed the mark every so often because they have a high bar, which is great. They, they make some really, really great things. So they have a, a, a high bar and they have a lot of viz. So they have that ability to be picky. Um, but I landed at a, a company called Ludomade, uh, which they were uh, an offshoot of a company called Soap Interactive, um, partly agency. So we would do websites and promotional pieces for uh, media. Uh, we did a lot with Fox and Disney and Sony and other companies. Uh, but I actually head up their their web games team. So we built a lot of pro- promotional web games, things for like USA Network's Colony Show. We built a series of games that released with the episodes that had tie-ins and uh, various things there. Uh, I was able to build out I think three different iterations of uh, engines that we used in house for web games. And the reason we had so many is we had one that was like super robust, could do anything, had 3d, had all of the bells and whistles was kind of a clunker, but it worked well. Uh, We had a a middle range, which was one we were phasing out. And then we had the super, super trim one for uh, something that was an awesome innovation. Um, I built one of the first games that lived on Snapchat. So when you're scrolling through Snapchat or I don't know how it works anymore, but <laughs> back in the day, uh, between some of the stories, uh, you get an ad and you could swipe up and go to a page. Uh, I built a game engine that would load so quickly that when you swiped up, you felt like you almost opened a new app. Uh, and so we were able to build promotional games. Uh, one of the big ones was for Serena Williams when she was going for her 23rd win. Um, unfortunately, she didn't make it that time, but... Oh. Uh, with with Gatorade, we, we built a, a little tennis game where you could celebrate all of her 22 wins prior. Uh, so it was a really cool, like, pixel animated, um, very Twitch gamey uh, setup. And it, it was a, a pivotal moment because I got to work with technology teams in another company building this thing that Snapchat was like, it should work. I think it works. And then when I sent it to their developer and they're like, it doesn't work, uh, being able to, like, remotely debug and figure out why a game isn't working when it works locally, which is the... It works on my machine. The, <laughs> it works here, yeah. Oh, Lord. Um, so that that was a fun experience. Um, I was able to do some level design for the Uncharted mobile game. So when Uncharted 4 came out, they released a, a companion mobile game on iOS and Android, which as you beat through some of the puzzles, you were able to unlock things for the game. So uh, it's pretty cool because... That was a, a great moment to flex other skills other than software development and um, digging into code. It was making puzzles and making puzzles that were challenging and exciting and gave you those thrill moments when you solved them or gave you those really unfortunate moments when like, you saw the solve but failed. You're just like, oh, if I would have made that one move. And it, it, was, it was great because you could hear um, 
people throughout the office when they're playing your level, uh, one guy would always be like, oh, Jared. And it's like, oh, he got to level 12. <laughs> um, and so you, you get to see the signature of others. I worked with a team that, that built those levels and you knew who uh, designed certain levels based on some of the puzzles. And you'd be able to like pick up your Nerf gun and shoot him across the way when you couldn't <laughs> pass it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really interesting spot because we were a smaller studio. I think we had 45 of us at our peak. Uh, but we operated usually around um, 25 to 40, depending on uh, some of the projects we needed people for. Uh, got to touch Unity, got to touch uh, all sorts of things. Uh, so that was a spot where I was able to kind of go wild in, in game dev. And I'll, I'll let you ask questions because I'm sure there's a ton here. <laughs> yeah, did you, did you feel like that was the, the place where you grew the most in terms of game dev? I know you said Atomic was where you grew the most in terms of just growing but for this it yes. seems like you did so many different things so yeah so atomic objects where i grew in like development and professional uh areas and then when i was at ludo made that's where i grew a lot in games i touched a ton of different types of architectures um i forgot about it one of the last projects there in like a month i cranked out a game that we used in a live experience with adidas um on a 75-inch touchscreen TV that people could go win prizes off of. Uh, so it was, a, it was a point where I was able to really innovate and grow and own bits and pieces of the project because we had four or five major projects at one time. Uh, so there wasn't super delineated, uh, you get this and you get that. Instead, it was, you need to make this work amongst the four of you. Good luck. Uh, I think we've got enough of the skill sets in there. Tap someone else in if you need it. Um, so it was a moment where it's like it kind of was a trial by fire. Um, and at certain points, it was staying late at the office because I really messed up with one bug and I don't know where it was. Or the little bit of crunch time we'd have here and there um, really allowed me to pick brains of uh, some of my peers and understand what they were making in games as well. In terms of oversight, not oversight as in missing something, but oversight as in people who are like sort of looking down and, and being in charge of these projects. It doesn't sound like there was a ton. Do you, do you think that it was mostly just a get this done and do it however you see fit sort of situation? It was a unique uh, role. The The agency had a couple leads. Um, I think it was a CEO and a COO at the time that were kind of overseeing everything that came in. Um, but they allowed us to do the pitching. They allowed us to do all of the work. Uh, when I say pitching, we pitched some projects uh, to other companies. Like if we wanted to win Disney or Fox, we either brought some prototypes up or said, hey, we know this is upcoming. We've got a game or a website or an experience for you. Do you want to work with us? And then really come up with these these things where you'd go into the studio and present to someone who made time for you. Um, and it was really cool because like the the two leads kind of pushed us in directions and made the the big calls and then they're like now you guys execute you guys work on it this is our our need and this is our outcome and this is like the 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 line in the sand or the standard we have to hit um and so i think it was a great spot where we were able to build and grow and it became more of a challenge one another not what do i need to do and how do i need to get there instead how can we go above and beyond um and so I think that was, while it didn't have a project owner at all points, I think we all took role in project ownership. I owned a few projects, a few other people owned a few projects. Um, 
and then we worked with our teams to really say, Hey, this is what we need done. How can we, how can we work together? Yeah. That sounds like an amazing environment to, to mature and as a game developer. And obviously I don't have any, um, great perspective to, to put a spin on that. But I think that if I was in game dev, that would be sort of the environment where I'd want to check out and, and sort of figure out where I want to go and take that direction. And the next step yeah. that you took was. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll round that one out quick. Those environments are great. They can also be double-edged swords. Uh, that's why mm-hmm. we had three different uh, game engines for the web. And then there was unity and other stuff because, well, it was quicker for someone to make something and something else. So why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a great environment. It can be a double-edged sword, but as long as you put the focus in it, it's, it's growth. Uh, but from there, I went to a company called Leftfield Labs, which broke me away from games for a little bit. I was able to do some games and gamification, uh, but I think what had peeled me away was um, games are tough. When you get into a studio, um, there's a lot of times people who have ideas and goals and drives for the game or for certain parts. And sometimes you get into studios where there's no drives ideas and goals for certain parts and instead there's like a business outcome of the game or a general like story view of the game and then everything in between is kind of ambiguous um what that tends to lead to is crunch time which is a terrible thing in the games industry and something that i'm sure a lot of developers have heard about will hear about will still continue to experience um but i'll have to say this too crunch time happens everywhere um crunch time happened when i was back in college and I was picking up extra shifts at the restaurant because someone was sick or we Mm -hmm. had a a party come in. Uh, Crunch time happened when I was in the automotive factory as a parts inspector uh, because we were behind in parts. So I have to, I have to like stop that myth there that it's just games that has it. Um, But games can especially have it because there is creative drive and vision and it can be overwhelming at points. so I, I got fed up with that. And I said, I want to take a breather. I want to move to something where I can uh, kind of not burn out of the games industry before I just don't want to do games anymore because ultimately I wanted to do games. Uh, so I went to Left Field Labs, which is a a studio that does all sorts of things. Um, when I had started, they were doing some mobile and web experiences. We did things like we helped with Uber's um, American Sign Language, American Sign Language uh, initiative. So at the, the early days of Uber and Lyft, um, you could get a deaf driver or a deaf passenger or someone hard of hearing. And if you have no understanding of ASL, you wouldn't be able to communicate with them. So mm-hmm. we, we helped build an app that showed you how to sign your, your name using just like letters in ASL how to say a few things like mine stops up here or to the right, or how are you today? Um, and have that engaging moment. Um, so we, we built a lot of stuff where it was um, intended to make a change in the world. I got to work on a, a really great app for discovery kids, which is basically a kids focused Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. So they, they partnered with a bunch of different groups, PBS, uh, I think they had some Disney stuff on there and a few other content providers to have shows. And then as soon as they started building it, we started building games in. So I was able to like use my games experience from Ludomade to build in a web engine for mobile devices of five, six-year-old 
caliber to run web games really quickly. So it was a great point where I was able to harness some of like my game experience. Um, but also you, you look at data differently and you look at interactions differently in like just a standard web app in a game. So being able to kind of merge those things gives you memorable experiences, I should say. Uh, so something where if you gamify or um, make a button come alive on a site, sometimes it just is really cool. You hover that submit button or that sign in button and a little shine goes across it and it bounces. It's like, oh, that wasn't really gamified. That wasn't really like giving me points, but it's an interaction that, like a game developer might notice more than a, a front end web dev. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I actually want to jump in real quick and sort yeah, of commend yeah. you for that. The I know it wasn't solely your, your mission, but the mission of creating a, a better environment for kids to be able to consume entertainment because um, I actually work in, in the educational technology industry and I work in um, a part that monitors and, and looks at suicide and self-harm alerts for these young K-12 children. And a lot of the things that I see in this industry is media that is um, leading children into these sort of mindsets of self-harm. And it's just it, it, what I see mostly is kids consuming media that wasn't intended for them or wasn't um, made with them in yep. mind. Um, so I definitely really, I know that this has been attempted in a lot of different places and I, I hope we see more of this in the future. But I think the idea of a platform dedicated towards kids where they can consume media that won't really be as harmful as some of the stuff out there that we have is a great idea. So I definitely want to point that out because I thought that was really interesting. Thanks. I mean, it's pretty cool too with the way like you can lock an iPad or an Android device into an app. So if you lock them into an app that's got games and videos and various things and say, have fun kid, um, it, it provides that experience where you know that it should be safe or at least safer than safer. letting them grab the remote or scroll through YouTube and then end up in a really dark part of YouTube. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it was a great feeling to, to have that. And it was a great spot to be because you also get to see the world differently. We did some user testing and you're just like, oh, a kid didn't notice that or a kid picked up on this one thing that I never would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and children are bright. They're, they are incredibly bright, and it's just cool to see the world differently. Uh, we all get jaded as we age, and we assume that the close button is going to be in the top right corner, and that when there's a play button, I'll get audio or video. And sometimes you don't even need any of that to have an engaging experience. So being able to, to take that moment and make something great, but also expand, like, Oh yeah, Jared, get out of your mind and get into other people's minds to understand different experiences really helped grow me as a person too. Yeah. And and like you said, kids are smart. It's a it's a terrible combination. They're they're smart, they have so much free time on their hands, and they're very technologically literate. Um uh the unfortunate reality or fortunate depending on how you look at it, uh is that kids these days are getting access to technology at incredibly young ages and they're going to be able to do things that maybe a normal person can't even understand like people who work in the computer industry have a much better perspective on how technology works but parents who just want to keep their kid quiet for a few hours or get some rest after a hard day at work and hand their kid an ipad might not realize the impact that that's having on these kids so i think having more focus on giving a better environment for kids to grow up in and not just giving them the reins to the internet, which is a terrifying place. <laughs> um, 
it's definitely something that I hope more people focus on. So it's scary. And I, I, I kids, I remember myself growing up cause I'm, I think I'm a little bit younger than you, maybe four or five years. Um, but I grew up in a world sort of pre technology overtaking everything, but transitioning into that as I got into my teenage years. So I missed out on that young age attached to a computer 24 seven. Um, and I think that is really leading some of these, um, very worrying trends that we have in younger kids today where they, they get access to technology at the age of five or six and just yeah, never, it never goes away. They're carrying around that, that iPhone because you can't buy a flip phone anymore or mm-hmm. it's very hard to. And so, and, and you don't want right to, fingertips. you don't want to, um, you don't want to have your kid be the only kid in elementary school or whatever with a, with a Nokia brick phone. They're going to get made fun of. Kids are also mean. That's another thing that people forget. Kids are very mean. <laughs> and um, they'll bully you for anything. They'll bully you for, for having a flip phone, for not having high sp- I remember growing up, I had dial-up internet until I was like 12. Um, and that was way later than most people my age. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'd have to go over to people's houses to download files and stuff on my little fake laptop um, because our dial-up wouldn't work. <laughs> So. Oh yeah, and then you you realize that the hundred dollars you spent on that five hundred and twelve gig like USB drive mm-hmm. went to waste because it was six hundred or five hundred twelve meg. Sorry. Yeah. So the five hundred twelve meg you downloaded five hundred and fourteen megs because it's like a game demo or something, and then you're just like, oh, I can't bring it home. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know. The technology has changed so much in the past ten years, and I, it's sort of easy to forget. Um, if you sort of grew up during that time, but it's crazy how much my life has been changed by technology over the past 10 years versus, uh, these days, I think it's evolving very quickly, but I don't think it it has been at the rate where it was for somebody like my age or your age, where it literally transitioned from a hobby to a life for a lot of people. Oh Yeah. That was a bit of a tangent. I'm sorry for for getting off on that. No, that's but. fine. Rabbit holes are a fun thing to uh, dive down into. Uh, but uh, popping back out of that, I think I was describing some of the things I was able to do at Left Field Labs. Um, I'll, I'll finish out with saying uh, the the company grew and expanded. We were able to do really cool stuff like uh, building connected devices for show floors. Uh, I traveled to a few different cities and a few different countries for uh, larger uh, conferences where we networked uh, stations on a certain part of the conference floor that if you scanned in, you might show up on a screen elsewhere, or you might be able to interact with someone at a different part of the booth. Um, So like as the company grew and we had more minds come in that said, this is a fun thing to do. uh, We were able to go into like microcontroller technology and using like Raspberry Pis and very similar devices to to build connected experiences, which I think, again, was a great spot for me as a game developer because like a Raspberry Pi, um, a tiny little computer, you can program something on it. Uh, you can put a bunch of those together in terms of like networking them and build games out of them, um, like physical space-based games. Um, which allows you to think outside of what's on my screen and what's on my controller, but like what's in my space. Um, so there's there's a lot of fun there. Uh, I moved into management of the the tech team there, so I was a, a technical director for a while uh, at Left Field Labs, uh, which is 
really interesting to see business that way uh, because the time smacking keys and making code appear uh, was lessened drastically over time. And instead, I was writing technical documents to like push my teams forward, uh, which is another great aspect, even at early, early stages in one's career, is trying to understand all the, whoops, sorry, all the bits and pieces that uh, go together to build the application versus like, I own this little button and the buttons around it. Um, and so I think thinking broadly, um, being able to do that early in my career set me up for uh, running that side of the business for a while. Um, so being a tech director, I was managing people and projects, project outcomes, um, really understanding the life cycle versus the the minutia of the day-to-days. Uh, and then uh, after a while with that, I was like, I need to get back into games. Um, I need to be coding again. And that transitions into Cryptic, which a um, handful of months ago, mid-last year, um, I actually had a few different game studios approach me. Uh, which was an awesome spot because I was still on the side contributing to game jams and to open source game tools, which is a great way to get yourself noticed. Get noticed by developers who might use your thing, and then they might want to bring you onto the team. Um, and then in all that, uh, I can't remember how it happened, but I just ended up in an interview with with Cryptic. And being a D&D fan, they have Neverwinter. Uh, mm-hmm. Being a Magic player, uh, they have magic legends which is what i'm working on um the technology stack that we use actually used a lot of similar tech for uh what i uh did in web so it was like all these pieces aligned and uh the game gods said welcome back uh (laughs) and that's kind of where i'm at now so not to put you on the spot too much but over the past uh years of your education and, and employment uh not including cryptic what would you say were some of the major like best parts of that time? Uh, like where would yeah, you say best... your favorite role was? Oh man. I think I constantly go back to uh, where I grew and how the company was run with atomic object. Um, it was a smaller studio and while it wasn't game design, um, the, the CEO and um, the co-leads were really all about building people up um, at Atomic Object. They were very much kind of like how I described Ludomade. Uh, the higher-ups brought in the projects, and then they handed it off to a team. So there would be usually a team of us, uh, two or three developers, two or three designers, and we would own the project. We'd communicate with the client. We would uh, scope the project. We would talk to the client about, hey, we're ahead. We're behind. Here's where your budget's at, and really own the product. Um, and like I said, while that wasn't games, it was very fulfilling to see from all aspects how the project is going and to see my daily impacts. Um, we did a lot of tracking of tickets, estimating of tickets, tickets being things that we would have to work on. So um, in project software, you'd create a, a task or a ticket, you'd assign a number to it, which usually seemed arbitrary, but that number tracked against other tickets Um and eventually you could kind of have a very, very solid estimate of the project. Um, and I think that was just really cool to to have an understanding of knowing almost down to the day when something could be done, uh, provided there were no changes. Um, so that was, it was fulfilling. That's where I had some of my, my bigger mentorships or uh, where I was a mentee. Um, and so I think 
that grew me the most. And I continue to refer to some of the ways that we scoped projects and the ways that we ran projects, uh, both in direct reference to like my peers and sometimes indirectly like, oh yeah, I know how to solve this. Um, I think content wise, my favorite uh, up until Cryptic was Ludomade because I was making games and games and games and games. Uh, I looked back at my list the other day and I think I had 43 different games that I had built. Um, and they're, they're not all like 700 hours of Skyrim quality, but they were things like you could spend a few hours in it. Um, or they were experiences that were connected to seven other games. Uh, so that was, I think, content-wise, that was fun. Um, but I don't feel like I, I leapt ahead. Somewhat like we were talking about technology before. Atomic Object was my... 10 years ago technology ludomade was my like nowadays technology uh in terms of the speed that uh that growth happened that's awesome i love these analogies that you have i think you're, you have a great gift in terms of translating all of this technical knowledge and your experience into something that people like me can understand <laughs> yeah thanks i mean that's that's one of the things that uh i think a good developer has is uh a software developer needs to be able to communicate mm-hmm. um and early on, I said, I can talk super technical. I think the, the biggest thing was, how can I not? How can I talk super low-tech or no-tech? Um, and that if I can understand the low-tech or no-tech side, I can translate it to tech in my brain. Don't worry about that. I can ask those questions like, do you need this buffer or do you need that uh, set of memory? You don't know. You don't care. You just want it to work. Um, so it's it's. I think that's a, another, like, back to what you should know, kids, uh, is being able to take away your expertise and talk at a human level uh, is incredible. Um, They say some of the best hackers are the ones who have that human level of engagement because 90% of hacking is usually socially. Mm -hmm. So if I can get your password, if I can get you to let me follow you in, there you go. So if you want to be a hacker, if you want to be a developer, just be a person. (laughs) Yeah. There there's, that's a great example because I remember looking into a lot of this um the the larger hacks that have happened recently for some of the more prominent online people it usually ends up being um and this one is a little scary a lot of the times um it's people calling into phone companies and and sort of social engineering them to give away sim cards or stuff like that where they'll transition the person's phone over to themselves like via no uh there's a word for it uh, pen, like no penetration of them their, themselves is like very yeah. basic hacking. They don't need say. a password. They don't need anything. They just need to pretend they're a personal assistant or something. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of companies. I when I was in Los Angeles, um, one of my roles with Leftfield Labs let me work with Google as a, a contractor through Google because uh, we had a lot of Google projects. Um, when you go to their campuses, at every door. They've got cute little cartoon gators that say no tailgaters. Um, and that's one of the big things. Like you walk up to a door and you're carrying what looks to be your lunch and you go, oh, hold the door. You don't know who that person is unless you actually know them. That's it's incredible. Uh, yeah. the tangent aside. <laughs> no, it, it's it's really interesting. And maybe one day I can have somebody on the show who has like a lot of experience with with more of like the human side of security, um, because there's so much that people don't think about. And I, I've seen a lot of stuff online where people sort of describe all these security practices. And it can be as simple as, like you said, a sign that says no tailgaters, uh, somebody bumping off your key guard and just and, and entering the door behind you. 
Um, and it, it's, it really is very surprising how relaxed people get in an environment where they're working with sensitive data and, and you're like, never put your password in a plain text file on your desktop, but people are going to do it anyway, or never put, God forbid, write it on that never note. put a sticky note. Oh Lord. Um, or don't use your, your, uh, kid's birthday or something that you talk about yeah. or your pet's name yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's um there's a lot of different stuff that that people who may not be interested in the tech world um like they forget about security because they they, they think that like 90 percent of all this computer stuff is hacking somebody hacking in with their little hackertyper.com with their sunglasses on and everything but no like like you said most of it's just Figuring out stuff that people have been lax about, and where is the the least uh, defensive area that they can get into? Um, yep. Yeah. Which I mean, to to round that out, I think is something that developers have to understand on all all areas, back end, front end, etc. So I think that's something that as a developer, I have to grin at every time I see the no tailgaters. It's like, well, <laughs> I got to solve that in my code too. Yeah. Yeah. Man. I'm sure we can have a really interesting conversation about that. That I'm thinking of all these tangents, but I want to keep things slightly on track because I do actually have a time today. Normally, I start um, earlier, but it's actually 9:50 already. Um, yeah, and I had to take the dogs out, so I started. Us <laughs> no, 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 it's not your fault at all. <laughs> um, just I, I, sh- I shifted over to a night shift at my job, and it's really messed with my scheduling for stuff. So I've been trying to oh, figure man. out ways to. Um, make that work out for, for stuff like this. And it actually opened up more opportunities for the show because I, nice. I don't have to start after 8 PM at night anymore, which is a nightmare for people uh, across the country. But anyway, oh, yeah. um, we already talked a bit about how you joined cryptic. You said it was a bit of a blur, but you, you had some, um, some stuff out there and people approached you and, and you got into interviews and they liked you apparently. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, like I said, it was a bit of a blur because I had a bunch of open interviews. I had a bunch of large projects. We were in the middle of COVID at that point. Like the business world was kind of topsy-turvy. Yeah, man. Whoa. Yes, yeah, <laughs> this was very recent. So something that I, I um, have been monitoring is that job like transitions got demolished during COVID. Like nobody was hiring. My company completely froze hiring except for a few essential um, positions that they needed people for. Uh, so yeah, getting a job in the middle of that, that's definitely no small feat. So uh, It felt kind of like a, a domino effect. Like you had to wait for a domino to fall off elsewhere mm-hmm. that you could go fill. So like if enough people left a, a company somehow, uh, you could go fill one of those roles and then companies would open them up for like tiny windows of time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was kind of strange. Super on, on top of things. Um, and I, hopefully we're getting out of that right now. I think that we've maybe entered the home stretch of things. So now might actually be a really good time to get into game dev and in the software world in general, because I, I predict that there's going to be a very big hiring surge at the end of this tunnel uh, for companies who haven't been um, hiring as much. And I know some companies haven't cared at all since they're all remote anyway. So they've just kept things going, but a lot of companies haven't. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Definitely uh, something totally. to look out for. And a lot of companies have transitioned to understanding what it's like to work remote now. So I think this is a great spot too. Um, there's lots of openings that are starting to show up. Yeah. It's way easier 
I don't want to say it's way easier, but it's it's a lot different trying to get a job at an LA company when you're not in LA when they're actually acceptable of remote employees. Because I know a lot of these software companies and games companies will be like, hey, we need you to relocate to Los Angeles. And at the end of the day, what that ends up being is a lot of the time they'll go for a local candidate over you um, because it's just way easier for them. They get in-person interviews, they get cheaper moving expenses, they get everything. It's just easy, simpler. So, yeah, um, yeah. But right now, remote work has changed all that. So don't uh, don't write off your chances for working at a bigger company. Maybe you have a slot there that you haven't uh, thought was possible to fill before. But transitioning back into cryptic. Um, I actually want to talk a bit about Magic Legends because I myself am not a Magic player, but I have lots of friends who love Magic. What type of game is Magic Legends for people who are familiar with the Magic universe? Yeah, so if you were to take uh, Magic card play, uh, deck building, etc., uh, which there's a great video that our lead designer for that system had put out just a couple days ago. IGN picked it up, uh, and I believe it's on most, if not all, of the cryptic channels right now. Go take a look at it. There's a, a deck building aspect where you build a small deck, uh, and then imagine if you smash Diablo into that. So like the action RPG world, uh, where there's loot and um, kind of a, a top-down experience, and you get to use a, a random spell hand uh, of your deck. So bringing the magic side in, uh, you don't know what that next card could be. So you'll draw it, and it could be useful now, or you might have to hang on to it. Um, so that's, that's the two worlds collide there, allowing you to build uh, a small hand that uh, could be super potent, or it could be something that's like, if I have these spells together, it'll be great. Uh, but it has to work out. And so your your skills are always changing out, but I think it adds to the fun because you don't have a, a full bar of skills like 8 or 10 or whatever Diablo might have. You have a, a much smaller hand at one point. Um, you have some secondary skills to keep the action flowing, like if you want to hold on to some of your, your cards a little longer. Cool, do that. Um, so it, it kind of takes the, the beauty of a game of Magic um, you get to see some of the, the spells and monsters and locations that you'd see in the, the game, um, in like the, the physical card game, but in the digital world. Uh, we are working alongside Watsi to uh, really make sure that we fit all of the magic lore, uh, Watsi being Wizards of the Coast, uh, who, who owns that IP. Uh, so it's not like we're, we're taking a weird divergent path, mm-hmm. but we're just kind of bringing that into a more digital space. Uh, with some really fun effects. And you said that you were, obviously you're a fan of D&D, and you, you play Magic yep. the Gathering. So is there, like, pardon the pun, a bit of magic in terms of working on an IP that you have been a fan of for a while? Yeah, there there is a lot of magic there. Uh, because I think what it is is sometimes you get in the grind of the day-to-days. Um, today I was hunting down bugs, which not a ton of fun diving through file after file to figure out where the data went. Um, and when you start going back to our, our chat earlier, uh, where you turn off your brain and you get into that like weird spot, you also get into that when you're doing like doing this rabbit hole of finding a bug and it's just so frustrating, but knowing that you're building something that you can't wait to play and you can't wait to share with friends. Um, and that you enjoy the IP and the characters and the art style, like, it just makes it that much more amazing. Now, if I was on like 
uh, Candy Crush or My Little Pony Online or one of those, it's still a game cool, but at the end of the day, it's not something that I go, I can't wait to play that. I can't wait till we launch this piece. Um, so really being excited around the rest of the game helps uh, pull my attention to all areas, um, even to the point of like drawing my attention further than what my role technically allows me to influence. Like, oh, what if we did this? I'll talk to systems so they can get into the system later. Uh, so it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And my my introduction to Cryptic Studios was actually like you mentioned a little earlier, Neverwinter. The Neverwinter MMO uh, is and was the only MMO I've really ever gotten into. And me and a friend, uh, Carter, if you're listening, um, we we spent many 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 hundreds of hours, uh, probably shoot maybe 2013 or 2014 it was a while back um into it was before any of the major expansions launched so it must have been early on in the dev cycle for yeah for neverwinter but we we played so much <laughs> and i i came from a league background so neverwinter had this sort of draw to me where you don't have to manage a thousand bar spell bars like like wow um and you just had yeah. four spells maybe a few more if you had some different stuff so that's where the draw for me was um and then when you approached me or like i I guess you approached me i approached you um for this interview and and you said cryptic i'm like that's really special i never thought i'd be able to get to talk to somebody who is on the same company of of a game that i spent probably north of two thousand hours on growing up um with my friends so i wanted to bring that up because i think that's that's a, a bit of that magic too yeah i think that's that's a special thing is being able to understand um the games just don't appear out of nowhere there's there's some of us behind the scenes working tirelessly on those and at the same time when we hear oh these guys put thousands of hours into it uh as a game developer i i even if it wasn't a game that i worked on but it's something my my studio worked on i have this warm feeling in my heart like oh man my coworkers did something that brought joy for thousands and thousands of hours versus Oh yeah, it was that one game that you deleted immediately because it's boring. <laughs> um, and so it's it's great because games are so subjective. And when you when you find people who really like the game or the style of game that you've worked on, um, those are people that uh, provide great insight. Yeah, it it was a it was a different experience for me. It was just something completely out of left field that I never thought I'd be into. But I think playing with a friend really really drove that aspect of it. Um, for where it was like a bigger part of my life because coming from like league and battlefield and call of duty and i didn't play much call of duty um shoot combat arms have you ever played combat arms combat arms yeah. a lot of combat arms going on. <laughs> um yeah just having that that ability to, to tune into this different style of game and and it was sort of my introduction to the D universe um where it, I just didn't get that anywhere else. Like you play a game like league, especially back in the day, they don't really have, they didn't really have that like rich story lore. Everything was sort of just like Trundle was the king of trolls. He was the troll king. Ash was the queen uh, of yeah. the Freljord. She was the Freljord queen. And I think they've, they've sort of transitioned a lot of that attention to detail into a, building a universe that people are excited for. But at the time it was, there was no competition for an established universe that has decades of people uh putting their lives into it so i thought that was pretty neat too um even if at the time i didn't appreciate it as much (laughs) it's rare to find that and it usually manifests in big mmos uh but it's been cool to watch riot 
kind of grow on that. I remember mm-hmm. intro to some of the the Riot uh, IP was nothing was in the game, but when you went to the website, you could read the little blurbs and bios. And so, yeah, I remember reading some of those similar things where it's like, there's nothing about them. What world am I playing in? <laughs> and that I think that's what's so exciting for for fans um, of MMOs to know that Riot is actually working on their own. Um, MMO, whatever it's going to be, uh, yeah. whenever it comes out, it's going to be years and years. But I think b- building that platform of an actual universe that people want to engage in and, and you can actually see in the game has been such a big building block that they've been focusing on. And that's why, hopefully, that's why they've been doing it to transition yeah. into a universe that people will actually care about. But transitioning back to Magic, a world that I don't know, unfortunately, a lot about, um, <laughs> let's talk about. Um, we talked about what type of game it was and what, what the draw was for you, but what is like, yeah. what has the transition been out of sort of a, I know you said you spent a, a little while outside of game dev specifically. What has it been like transitioning back into game dev at cryptic? Yeah. So, uh, projects run differently, especially long run projects versus, uh, agency based projects. Uh, I spent a, a lot of time in agencies, so projects are shorter. Uh, I think the longest project in all of my career up until this point had been a year and a half, maybe two years, which seems like a, a big, long-running project, and it is. Uh, but when you get to something where it's got um, teams who have built the engine and teams who have built the story and whatnot five, six years ago, uh, pitched it through, got it running, uh, you hear about iteration after iteration, and like the packs reveal multiple years ago and how different the game has been. Um, it's cool to be in a spot where there's an ever changing environment um, with the slippery slope of it's ever changing. So don't ever think what you did today is going to be final forever. Um, you'll see that in games like wow, that have been running for what, 12 years now, something like that, uh, that their UI and their character design, their storytelling has evolved. Um, but to see a long run in how things are handled uh, is really cool. I think the the transition back into games has been uh, kind of that, that sigh of relief because it's an area that I enjoy and am excited about. Not that any of the projects that I was on in any of the other companies were not like exciting or something that I, I didn't enjoy, but it was just like, oh, cool, I solved the problem. Give me a gold star. Let's keep going. Uh, but it was never something I'd want to sit around and talk about. Uh, now it's just like, to the extent that I can share for each of the games that I've worked on, um, past and current, it's it's something I go, oh yeah, I did this one little thing, and then the players broke it, or I stumped the players for so long, and that that's a great moment. Uh, so being back in that field is amazing. Uh, being at Cryptic, we use uh, some web technology on uh, Magic for our UI. So there's a lot of uh, ways to put the UI elements on screen. Sometimes it's built really closely in engine. Um, I think Unity might have some web tech to lay on top. So like if you're a web developer, you can still work on games. Um, there's a handful of competitors for the product that we're using, but uh, it's, it's just a really cool uh, way to apply my knowledge. And then now I can see like, what drives the rest of the game and how can I further myself outside of work to then maybe uh, help out on the audio team or the graphics team or on another part of game X, game Y or game Z, whatever comes in, in the company's future. Definitely. Um, and not to, not to 
put it too broad strokes, yeah. but just in terms of uh, a uh, a few sentences or a paragraph that you can give out to people who who may not have been able to grasp everything coming out of this show, but showing in um coming in to try and be at the base level. Like, what skills and what things would you focus on, like, right now, if you wanted to get into your specific role at, at Cryptic? Or Cryptic. Yeah, Cryptic. Cryptic, yeah. That's all right. I think there was another studio called Cryptic, so it's it's an easy mistake. Uh, I think in a couple sentences, don't limit yourself to just the exact thing that you want to do. So I'm a front-end engineer who uses web technology. Uh, I shouldn't limit myself to that because there are plenty of areas that build up your expertise and knowledge and being able to contribute to a team. Uh, so for me, I studied uh, user experience and, and UI from a design aspect. Knowing how someone will interact with your software helps you write better software because you might take less steps. Maybe you take more in order to make that interaction, but knowing how the end user is going to interact means you could even remove 17 clicks because in reality, if you want to do something in a game, you want less clicks and less button pushes to do that cool thing. Um, so for me, focusing on UI and UX is huge. And then also focusing on the business aspect, understanding what it's like to plan a project, to manage a project, and to run a project allows me to understand why my production team is making the choices they make. Um, younger developers might come in and go, oh, why'd they put me on bug work? I don't want to do bug work. Or they might have cut a feature that I, I didn't want cut. Well, there's there's other aspects that go into what builds the game. Um, and if you know that, you might be able to pitch back some of those ideas or better ideas later. Uh, mm -hmm. So super, super short. Um, know the business, know the project planning, know um, the the expertise or a little bit of the expertise of the teams you'll work closely with. So for me, it's it's the UI guys. Knowing how to work with my UI team and understand what their outcomes are helps me understand what I might expect from them. Um, so don't don't short circuit yourself to knowing only the thing you want to do, um, but know the things around that that build that role. Um, so that's a little more broad stroke, but uh, for for people who want to do game engineering and do something on the front end. Maybe you don't want to do the 3D math and all of the, the audio design and whatnot, but you want to build the, the interfaces, the, um, the auction house or the inventory manager or um, showing off all the guns you've collected in whatever shooter you're playing. Um, I think the big thing there is find a couple studios, figure out what they use, and understand that technology and understand what it takes to build from the ground up. Uh, make your own stuff. Continue to make your own stuff, trash your stuff, and start over. So, so if you're not in a professional world, and you're not yep. in the in the education scene, if you've already graduated college and you're not looking to get back into it, what would yep. you do to gain these skills outside of that? I know you said that you worked on some game jam products. Would that be like forefront on that recommendation? I think game jams are great, but they're also daunting if you're not ready to use a tool or not ready to try and pick up a tool in 24 or 48 hours, what, what have you. Um, I think the biggest thing is set yourself some deadlines and try to create a project in those deadlines. Uh, it's great to have a side project, but the terrible thing about side projects is you close the lid on them and you slide them across the desk and life gets busy and things 
stack up, and then when you open it and you dig through all the cobwebs, you're like, oh, I started that six years ago. It's cool, but I'd have to start from scratch. Uh, so I think have some ongoing projects that are exciting to you, and if they stop, wrap them up. Don't just set them down. Wrap them up so you feel okay about your accomplishment. Archive them. Write yourself a blog post, whether or not it goes live, whether or not it's just in your diary or journal or whatever. Um, keep that for yourself because those are, are points you can look back and go, oh, yeah, I made this little, this stupid little game that didn't really work. I enjoyed it. What did I enjoy about it? Five years later, you look at it and go, I know I've grown from this point, but how did I grow? So have your side projects, set some timelines on them, and then really uh, have your retrospectives on these projects so that way you can see your growth. And I think that's the biggest thing is not having retrospectives and not having markers doesn't let you see how far you've grown. Uh, doesn't let you say, oh, I'm much closer to the game job now than I ever was because you said, oh, yeah, I made these three tic-tac-toe games. One was 3D and one had uh, explosions in it. But how did you grow between them? Um, I think that's the, the core. And then surround yourself with others who are in similar spots or professionals. Uh, meetups are one of the best things. Um, while you shouldn't be going to them in person right now, uh, there's plenty of them that have transitioned online. There's game jam meetups. There's game developer meetups. There's um, game engineer meetups. And engineer and developer could be two different things. One does all the scripting and one does all the, the tricky, fun stuff behind the scenes to make that 3D work. Um, find those. Find lots of them. Reddit is incredible. You can find so many communities there that will push you forward. Um, if you find a toxic community, immediately leave it. Get out of there. Don't let that uh, hold you back. There's been a few communities that I've dropped into, and either the way they name some of their uh, add-ons to the game engine are very like gross or... Um, sophomoric and then they continue with that uh it puts a terrible spin on things yeah. step back have fun with it set your own goals and i think as long as you surround yourself with people who are pushing you go yeah definitely i i think i reiterating on that last point you made um you're not going to be getting any new fans for any sort of industry that you're working in if you're concentrating on pleasing the the very small subset of people that are already doing something like this so maybe consider taking a more professional approach towards stuff that you make um, because you never know who's going to drop in and take a look at it and be impressed or unimpressed um, and i think i think if you do stuff like game jams which you'll eventually work to uh those are great moments where you could make something really stupid really silly some of the premise of the game might even be borderline like not work friendly uh but the way you go about it and the way you build those things, um, people will pop in and they'll look at it and they'll go, I remember that one because it was it was vulgar, but it was funny. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a few game jams where it's like, those were mildly uh, not work safe and I shouldn't have opened them up at work. But um, you were like, oh, they did some really cool things the way they engage with the user. And then you remember those games and you wait for the person next year or next month, whenever the next game jam is. Um, so if you find a spot to, to stick and show off your talent and show what you've learned, um, that attracts people as well. Definitely. And I know you've only been at, at Cryptic for a few months now, but I actually wanted yeah. to talk to you about this because I, I think professional development is something that doesn't get focused on a lot in game dev where people just sort of um, stay where they are until they're needed somewhere else. So do you have anything in your brain, not to sound like an interviewer, but do you have anything in your brain 
in terms of where you want to be in in a few years, where you want to change your career or how you want to develop your your expertise? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I had done early on was I set a a very lofty goal to hit, to hit by 30, which I didn't, which is great. I didn't hit my goal. Let me recalibrate and understand where I fell short. Uh, my goal at 30 was to be uh, a lead for a game or a game's team within a studio. Uh, didn't hit it. Awesome. Recalibrating that would be in a, in the next few years where I'm at and the teams that I'm around, being able to potentially lead up another game or take over a game within Cryptic would be great. Being like the, the go-to guy for... Um, the overall, the planning, the the ideas, the development, etc., um, and knowing how some of the the technical teams work and some of the design teams work, being able to apply that where uh, sometimes you get project leads. And uh, I was at a company a handful of years ago; won't mention which one it is, but a project lead sometimes is disconnected from the day to days. And so when they make a request, when they say it's just a little button. Um, it's never just a little button, but knowing how to speak that to your teams is something that I want to be able to uh, kind of push back into the idea of game development. Um, so super lofty would be being able to bring that to other studios, whether or not that's uh, coalitions or various other things, but being able to talk games and being able to talk games well, um, not just a, I want to have a shooty shooty thing, but I want to make it fun for everyone involved, the players and the developers and designers alike. Uh, so that's like my super lofty goal. Being like a, a head of a project is um, probably the next five year idea as to where I'm going. Who knows? Maybe we'll get to revisit uh, you in a few years and we'll be able to come Maybe. back and see. We'll we'll go back into the old episode and we'll see if uh, these goals came to fruition or not. But oh, man, um, going back into the old episode. And <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure everyone's going to enjoy that. <laughs> It'll be when you have your holodeck show that shows in full 3D in someone's home. Because, you know, five years from now, oh yeah, you might be running a whole network. Yeah, who knows? Uh, <laughs> so, so last question, and then we're going to wrap things yeah. up. Uh, I've been trying to push this a little bit more recently. Who do you have in your life or who has been in your life who is a source of inspiration for you? Uh, and specifically, like, somebody that you look to to, like, get out of bed in the morning and, and do your job. Yeah, uh, I have a couple people, um, and I think for good reason. Uh, I have three people that I worked with. Uh, two of them were mentors of mine when I was at Atomic Object, and one was a, a, a guy who became a good friend. Um, I think those three guys had kind of shaped my perspective on development and approaching games. Um, the two mentors really shaped my development and just like being a human. I remember a handful of times uh, one of my mentors who is super, super straight-faced about everything would just like turn and stare at me and be like, you need to proofread your emails. And then he'd turn back and I'm just like, I don't know if I was just reprimanded or if he just kind of told me what to do, but I really took to heart some of the things where it's like, you don't have to be sat down and slapped on the hand for something you did wrong, but more like a just always continue to improve yourself. Uh, him and I actually, for a while, had gotten into a thing where we had bowls of quarters. We sat in close proximity in an open office environment. We had bowls of quarters, and we had words that we would catch one another on. So things like if I used filler words to uh, make sure my sentence didn't have a gap in it, I had a few filler words that I wanted to get on my vocabulary. Uh, it was great because 
we had a, a moment where the bowls would change. And so it's like someone who's always challenging you in various ways. Uh, that's why I looked at that guy. One of the other guys uh, was because he, he looked at games as I'd love to be in them. I love to be creating them professionally, but I also understand my limits and my expectations. And so he really kind of put the bounds on like what it is to be a dreamer. Um, not that you should have bounds on your dreams, but you should also think realistically. Like sometimes if I were to say, oh man, I want to be a jockey and I also want to be on a spaceship, that's a lot of work for both. And I also don't fit the height or weight requirement for the <laughs> jockey and probably not the physique for, for being an astronaut. So it's like being able to kind of um, harness that as, is a huge thing. Uh, and then I also have to, uh, for the person daily that I, I look to, um, and see every morning would be my wife. Uh, she is always uh, challenging me in ways to um, remember things around the home because I get absent-minded in the way I think about like a problem and it sticks. So, you know, I get the milk out, set it on the countertop, and I hear, <laughs> oh, yes, remember things. But it's also that uh, she is super intelligent, and she's actually going back to work on her master's uh, to, to oh, continue wow. growth. And so it's one of those things where um, it challenges me to go, oh, how can I be better? Even if I'm not going for a degree or a degree add-on, it's how can I always be growing myself? Uh, and to see someone who uh, challenges me that way uh, with the way she has owned uh, her, her career path in this, um, she's, she's doing her un some extra undergrad studies, so she's prepared for the master's programs. Not that she needs all of them, but it's one of those things where it's like go above and beyond in your personal growth, go above and beyond in the way you shape uh, yourself. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of my other inspirations. Um, so as long as you fill your life with people like that, that, that harness you and propel you, uh, I think you get a trajectory of what you want. Um, and it's not to say that any one of these people specifically is the person that will get me to where I want to be. But I think in and of itself, uh, having kind of that group uh, pushes me forward. Definitely. Those were fantastic answers. Jared, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to check out things that Jared does, you can always check out his Twitter at Jared Sartin, uh, S-A-R-T-I-N. Um, or check I, out his... Also, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I also own the domain jared.sart.in. Uh, so you can check out, I think all of my links there. If you want to look at some of the code I've done, uh, that's a great spot to be as well. Yeah. Good. Uh, I've used that resource quite a bit when I was preparing for this <laughs> show. Uh, also check out his D and D show. It sounds like a good time. Um, uh, twitch.tv slash here be dragons, uh, D and D twitch.tv here be dragons D and D. So check that out. Um, I'm probably going to try to hover for an episode or two, see what's going on. Even if I'm not the biggest D and D fan myself. Uh, and then, of course, I'll have all that information down in the description of the the uh, podcast. So if you don't want to type things out, you can always click those. Um, but hey, if you like the uh, the dev dive stream, you can always watch live at twitch.tv slash Nighthawk20000 or on YouTube uh, where we upload the VODs every Wednesday. So youtube.com slash Nighthawk20000 as well. And if you can't catch it live and you don't want to watch this VOD, you can always listen on Spotify uh, Google Podcasts, Apple, every platform, like we said, Anchor is excellent for that. So uh, pretty much anything that you listen to podcasts on will be there. Uh, if you give us a follow and a rating on these platforms, helps out with SEO and discovery. Uh, really appreciate that. And if you want to just hang out with me or anyone in my community, just join discord.gg slash Nighthawk. We have a lot of fun people talking about 
stuff and uh, exciting things. So, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Thank you again, Jared, for coming on the show. Really appreciate you reaching out and being able to make this happen. So um, I'm looking forward to watching what happens in your in your life in the future. And we'll uh, maybe in the future revisit Dev Dive episode 50 or 70 or wherever it ends up being. Uh, Jared Sarton V2. So thank you again for listening, guys. And uh, have an excellent evening.